time to dim the lights, light the pumpkins, and wait for the monsters to come to your door. It's the Sixth Demon Bag Halloween Spooktacular <laughs> 2019. My story was inspired by Ray Bradbury's The Halloween Tree. I think I really captured the voice in the beginning. By the end, it kind of got away from me. I call it Far Burned Candle. There was more town than wilderness around in the far-flung future of the modern age. On the other hand, there still wasn't so much town that you couldn't smell and touch and see the wilderness, in your mind's eye at least. In a weathered house, a withered hand lit a pumpkin and another, then another and yet one more, until four there were all in a grinning row, their ghostly smiles the only illumination in the home which hid away in the full moon shadow of a small neglected church in a northwest corner of a midwest state. The man to whom the hand belonged next carefully framed within each spray of light the snakeskin sheddings of a childhood gone but not forgotten, remnants of a distant past where magic was the order of the day and bargains could be struck to shake the pillars of heaven and earth, Halloween costumes, which carried in every fiber and twist the true names of they that wore them, witch, mummy, monster, ghost, and last, the skeleton, bones that now, despite the costume's experience, were fresher and springier still than those the man wore in his everyday life. He held those old, clean bones up, breathed the ancient memories, year after year, of dry leaves, corn stalks, and popcorn balls. He breathed it in inside, wind in the dry grass. The clock struck the end of the hour, and thus the end of the old man's yearly vigil. Through the dry grass he forced four more breaths, extinguishing one by one the pumpkins that wore the faces of his friends long gone. Out went the witch. Ready, said the man. The mummy flickered, its light turned to dust. Set, he continued. The monster growled its last, and only the ghost remained. Go, he lamented, and the ghost evaporated, plunging the home into grave darkness. As he turned away, a not altogether unexpected thing happened. A soft orange glow relit the room, smiles widening and eyes winking across the walls. The man turned to find the pumpkins burning, and there in the row was a fifth, staring back at him with the midnight face of the man in the mirror. And above that pumpkin, lit from below, a face older than his own, older than the earth and yet young as morning, impossible and terrible, yet lovely too. I won't be going, the man whose face the pumpkin parodied said, the defiance of youth returning to his old bones. The shadow thing stepped forward and paused, surrounded on all sides by a circle of salt. He arched an eyebrow, spider silk in dry lake bed. Come now, it's only business. And as he said it, he stepped forward, unhindered and unabashed as the spice made way. The old man gave a start, but had another trick up his sleeve. With the pull of a cord, a beaded curtain of rosary leapt from the corner, forming a wall between he and the spirit, but the spirit was unmoved. He passed through the curtain with a flick of a wrist. Now, now, he murmured. This really will not do. Then the final safeguard fell into place as the clouds parted and the full moon cast the shadow of the church spire full force into the little parlor. Wafts of dust sped aside and cobwebs reeled tightly, and the man who was not a man for the first time caught his breath. He let it out again, an icy draft over headstone teeth, and took a seat in the armchair far outside the shadow. He crossed one stick leg over another and tented the points of his crackling fingers. I haven't all night, you know. You took them from me, one by one, the man said, having waited for this moment, an endless year that passed in an instant. 
their rent came due, the apparition croaked. And him you took, only four years later. If I remember correctly, and I always do, for my memory runs deep as time, four years were given. Four years from the end of four children's lives, to save the fifth from my clutches on that Halloween night. What else could you have expected? More, the old man sighed. Think of the adventures you had. Four more winters conquering mountains, four summers in the tall grass, four more Halloweens, and a great many beyond for the rest of you. And the old man did think. Lakes, forests, hot chocolate and snowmen and wood fires burning. The families and the children and the children's children swirling through time and flowing on. How the witch moved on, the monster and the mummy, arms encircled, tears feeding the brown grass of faded summers. He remembered it fondly and with great aching, new tears watering parchment hands. It was all over so quickly. The great irony of a life long lived, the spirit said, pinpoints of pumpkin light twinkling in his midnight eyes. I want it back, said the old man, weariness creeping into his old bones again. Think of what I could do with one more year. Nothing much of consequence, the old haunt cackled and gesturing to the pumpkins. Did the witch, or the mummy, or the monster? They laughed with me. And they shall again, now that your rent is due. The old man ran his eyes over the low-burning faces and out through the window at the clouds moving to cover the moon once again. The spirit continued, But you can't go like that. Inappropriate for such an occasion, I'd say. And the old man found that the old new bones fit him once again. He slipped them on and with them the memories, the spark, and all that made life grand and good. Will we have just one more adventure like we did so long ago, the old man asked, the boy fighting through with all his might. Of course we shall, my dear friend, said the ghoul, standing and shaking the years from his cloak. The last grand trick-or-treat. The man stepped boldly from the shadow of the church, stepped from the shadow, and opened the door, and he and his friend went out into the crystal night. As they did, the cemetery wind wound round their ankles and flew around the house, taking final stock of the memories there and cleaning out the corners for new memories to come. Its final stop was the parlor, and as it passed, it brought the light of the pumpkins with it, for the pumpkins were finished, and their light was needed elsewhere. It's really good, man. Yeah, dude. Yeah. Has everyone here seen the Halloween tree? Because I would love to know if anyone hasn't seen the Halloween tree. I have, I have not. Oh, okay. So did it make sense? Yeah. I'm covering Bradbury this uh, this month, actually, uh, yeah, on my yeah. show. So it's like, I've got this on my mind. You did a very good job of capturing that stuff. Wow, thank you. Yeah, the language was beautiful. Yeah. But actually, like, as a sequel to the Halloween tree, that was amazing. Oh. Sad. Thanks <laughs> yeah, very much. It was supposed to be sad slash happy because yeah. you're, you know. Slappy. And, yeah, slappy, if you will. That part where he has the costumes with the pumpkins and then he snuffs them out each year. That was awesome. Yeah, yeah really good. Thanks, guys. Good stuff. You hear voices from upstairs. And when you sneak up and press your ear to the door, you hear the cackling of nerds. I wrote this the other day because I watched a movie... A Dutch movie by a guy called Dick Maas called The Lift. I called it Express. Manning the day security desk in the lobby of the Sturgill building mainly consisted of pointing out the directory sign to visitors, keeping the panhandlers from harassing the suits on their smoke breaks. It was a cushy gig. Dion Wilkes had been there six years now. He'd started on nights. At first, the change had been jarring. You could doze through most of the night shift if you set an alarm to remind you when to get up and do your checks. And you could let the bums sleep in the doorways as long as they were packed up and gone by the time the cleaning crew left in the morning. His promotion to days had seemed like a hassle at first. Not as many opportunities to screw around. But he soon learned the perks. No rounds to check. You could actually plunk your butt in the chair and never move till quitting time. 
sure some Fridays he got called upstairs to escort somebody out the front door for the last time. That kind of sucked. End of the month was Dion's least favorite time, and today, of course, his relief had called in sick. He was pulling a double. The top floors of the building were occupied by CD Holdings, one of those big-name companies you heard about on the news whose names popped up all over the place on car dealerships, baseball stadiums, construction sites, and protest signs. What they actually did, Dion couldn't say. They made a lot of people miserable, for sure, because every end of the month, a recurring cast of sad-looking people wandered up to his desk and asked to speak to somebody about their rent or their mortgage or their business loan. These he'd send to the express elevator that went directly to see Holdings' corporate offices up on 14. Only one of these did Dion memorize the name and story of, and that was Dr. Vermin Kind, the owner of the Mystic Scion bookstore. Dion didn't know what kind was a doctor of. It surely wasn't medicine, or if it was, he'd go see a vet before he'd step in any office of his. Kind was a compact little German man of indeterminate age. Dion guessed somewhere between 45 and 60, pale without a scrap of visible body hair. He squinted up at you with beady bloodshot eyes from behind a pair of square Ben Franklin-type glasses and spluttered demands in his thick accent. He dressed like one of those steampunk nerds, always in a black bowler and three-piece suit with striped pants and a voluminous black velvet cape, so big maybe it was actually a cloak, over a silky brocaded vest and a shirt Dion expected a pirate would run you through for. He carried a black case, walked with a shiny black cane with a fancy silver star-shaped handle. Always, except for today. Today, Dr. Kine came through the door, always the regular one, never the revolving door, with a little black terrier scurrying ahead of him on a silver leash. Somehow, several months ago, C.D. Holdings had acquired ownership of the building this weirdo occult bookshop had occupied for a number of decades, and they'd raised his rent beyond agreeable rates, no doubt with the intention of pushing him out so they could level the place and install some garish, soulless monolith like the Sturgill building itself. Every month since, Dr. Kind had come to renegotiate the terms of his lease with the powers that be, and every month he emerged from the express elevator loudly and flamboyantly declaring his hatred of seedy holdings and its moronic administrators in expressive curses, both German and English. For once, though, Kind did not accost Dion at his post, but made straight for the express elevator. Hey, Dr. Kind, said Dion in his authoritarian voice, which was basically an imitation of his father. He stood up as Kind walked by. What's with the dog? The terrier was a Scotty, a sharp-eared, long-nosed, stubby-legged little thing hidden somewhere in a mass of drooping black hair like a chihuahua in a Halloween costume. Dr. Kind drew up short and stiffened. Dion came around his desk slowly. You can't bring him in here. He is an emotional support animal. Kind snapped in his clipped tone. I was prescribed him by my therapist for my anger. You see to what personal depths my exasperating dealings with this verdammt company and its brainless capitalist drones have reduced me to. I, vermin kind, third order ipsissimus of the inner temple, dweller on the threshold, who have in my time bent the primordial forces of life and death to my will, I, vermin kind, mouthpiece of the great sultans of the outer dark, to whom devils attend and angels sing, and beasts beyond mortal imagining answer. No more, Kind declared, thrusting up his finger. Today, I tell you, it ends. He was really in a mood today. Let the receptionist upstairs deal with him. Dion wasn't in the mood. By all means, said Dion, stepping aside and letting Kind and his dog make for the express elevator. Uh, good luck, Doc. When the door opened, he practically dragged the dog outside. He spun on his heel and dropped his case, and Dion watched him stoop down to retrieve it as the doors closed. Fifteen minutes later, Dion was about to head out to lunch when the stairwell door banged open and Dr. Kind swept out, a disturbing grin of heretofore unseen glee smeared 
stared across his pale face, his long black opera coat swirling behind him. He deposited something in one of the bronze trash cans that sent the little revolving lid spinning, then strode for the front door, chuckling, laughing loud enough to turn heads by the time he was outside. It wasn't until he was eating a pastrami sub at the lunch truck across the street near the end of his break that Dion realized that he couldn't even remember seeing Dr. Kind's dog. Maybe the dog had gotten tired on the stairs and Kind had scooped him up. Maybe Dion hadn't seen him under his big Dracula cloak. But why had he taken the stairs at all? It was a mystery he pondered all the way back to his desk and promptly forgot about when he pushed his earbud in to listen to the game. Top of the third inning, his phone lit up. Security desk, he muttered, picking up. Security, this is Mr. Pressman on the 14th floor. Dion sat up a little straighter in his chair. Walter Pressman was the silver-haired bigwig that occupied the top-floor corner office of C.D. Holdings. He was the head guy, the resident one-percenter, king of Castle Sturgill. Somebody had told him once that he had a standing edict not to lay eyes on anybody outside of his personal assistant and immediate staff. People literally hid behind doors when he passed. To be addressed directly by him, even over the phone, was like getting a summons from the burning bush. Uh, yes, sir, Dion said, trying to keep the shake out of his voice. A rich asshole like this was, in his way, as volatile and crazy as old Dr. Kind, except this particular lunatic could cost him his job if he said something to offend him. Dion's lunch dropped down into his lower intestine. Jesus, had Dr. Kind's mutt taken a dump upstairs? Damn, he would catch hell if he had. Are you familiar with the employees of CD Holdings? Do you know them by sight? Uh, sure, yes, sir, some of them. Have any of them passed by your desk recently? Dion looked around, trying to think of who had passed his desk in the last half hour. Well, truthfully, they all looked alike to him. Uh, um, said Dion. My receptionist, perhaps, Miss Deacon. Dion thought hard. He'd not seen the fake redhead since she'd come in this morning. Come to think of it, there'd been almost no crowd at the lunch break. He just figured he'd beat the rush. No, sir, Mr. Pressman. I haven't seen her since she came in this morning. What the fuck is going on down there, Pressman demanded. The floor is empty. None of the staff's returned from lunch. They were due back hours ago. Dion opened his mouth, attempting to form a reply, unsure of what the man wanted to hear, but Pressman snarled, Never mind! I'm coming down! He hung up. Dion threw out the remains of his sandwich and stowed his earbuds, even wiped the surface of the desk down. He watched the lobby clock tick off the minutes. Five, ten, twenty. He waited tensely for the phone to light up again. Then he got bored. Pressman wasn't coming. Evidently, his staff had turned up. Maybe it was his birthday and they'd been hiding or something and jumped out to yell surprise. Man, some cake would be good about now. Uh, the rest of Dion's shift was pretty quiet, but he noticed something weird. A couple more end-of-the-month stragglers showed up and made their way upstairs. None of them came down. Whenever they did go up, he watched the elevator light climb to 14 and just sit there till it was called again. Nobody ever came back down. It got to be quitting time. He stared at the red doors of the El Express elevator, and nobody emerged. Was everybody up there working late? The other offices emptied out. Still, nobody came down from 14. The cleaning crew showed up, chattering in Polish. Dion watched a couple of the guys head to the express elevator. He watched the light count down from 14. They stepped inside the empty elevator, still talking. The doors closed behind them. Somewhere down the hall, the waxer whined to life. Up went the express elevator. And then a woman screamed. There was a loud bang, and one of the cleaning ladies was backing away from the overturned bronze trash can by the door, shaking her head. Dion stared at the trash that had spilled out from the can. Lying on the floor among the garbage was a little black dog's leg one end bright red with blood like a paintbrush. Dion nearly went shrieking after the cleaning lady. Holy fuck, what the fuck was going on? 
He thought about Dr. Kind and about how he'd taken the stairs back down from 14. Oh, what the hell had happened upstairs? Had the little old German gone batshit and machine-gunned everybody? Why had he thrown his dog's leg in the trash? Dion went to the gun locker under the desk and fumbled the combination three or four times with sweating hands. The gun locker popped open with a buzz and he stared at the Glock inside. He'd have to fill out a shitload of paperwork just for opening this fucking thing. Well, he was committed now. He took it out, flipped off the safety, thought better of it, and flipped it back on. He had 14 floors to ride before he knew if he had to bust a cap in somebody. He crossed the lobby to the elevator and called it. It seemed like forever before the numbers counted down to one and he heard the ding. As the red doors began to slide open, he suddenly jumped to the side. Nothing came out, no bomb went off, no half-naked people fell out, no gang of Uzi-toting Europeans spilling suitcases of bearer bonds emerged. What the hell were bearer bonds, anyway? Dion peered around the corner. The elevator was empty and nothing out of place, so he stepped inside. The doors closed behind him and the lift began to ascend. He turned to watch the progress on the lighted panel. The inner doors of the elevator were dripping with blood. That's not to say it was spilling down the door like paint. Somebody had written or drawn something in dark red blood on the doors. It was a big crude circle full of squiggly little symbols and words in a language he didn't recognize. He was so surprised to see that he forgot to flip the safety off his clock. The elevator whisked to the 14th floor and dinged. The bloody circle on the doors seemed to flash bright red for just a second, or else Dion had imagined it. The doors slid open, the circle breaking to pieces like a puzzle and receding into the inner housing. He didn't understand what he was looking at. A long, round tunnel stretched out before him. It glistened wet and radiated heat. It looked like a cave, the floor and ceiling prickling with weirdly translucent black stalactites or stalagmites or both. Which ones stuck up and which ones hung down? All around the very threshold of the elevator door was a soft rubbery gray substance that quivered and dripped a clear syrupy liquid. An overwhelming chemical stink like laundry detergent wafted into the car. Dion peered down the dark tunnel as the whole length of it undulated. A sharp object shivered and the puckery seal around the doors went rigid and made a wet slurping sound. Dion had stood in high winds before. In the winter, the wind blew hard enough through the downtown area off the lake. It pulled your clothes tight, but he'd never felt a wind attack him in the opposite direction. That was, it didn't blow towards him. It sucked at him so strong he had to stumble back and grab the safety railing. He dropped the Glock and watched it go flying down that dark, wet hallway. He was pulled right off his feet and one of the shoes followed the pistol. The air rushed violently from his lungs faster than a sneeze. His nostrils dried up and he was treated to the sight of his saliva escaping his mouth in a burst of steam. His joints and fingers prickled and he found himself unable to hold the rail. He was drawn from the car into the grasp of something, several somethings, that slithered in knots from the dark tunnel. They tangled around his feet and curled up his legs, tightening around him in the light of the elevator like bumpy red snakes. Not snakes. Tongues, he knew, as his joints swelled painfully, and he gulped for non-existent air that they were tongues. They dragged him out of the elevator over the black, sharp things. He saw the lift doors close, cutting off the light. They receded so quickly into the distance, they were the size of a postage stamp before he could think to scream. The sharp things ripped him like a fallen water skier dragged through jagged coral, flayed the flesh, shredded the flesh to the muscle, scraped the muscle to the bone. He went where the others had gone, where Dr. Kind had sent them, over the teeth and through the gums, something his mother used to sing to him as a kid at lunchtime. He didn't have time to remember the rest. What? inspired that story i said i watched this dutch movie called the lift that is about a killer elevator (laughs) in a high rise and i was like god this is such a ridiculous idea but it was really fun to watch and stuff and just the the ways they were coming up to kill people with this elevator and i was like how could an elevator what i was just trying to think of another way to kill people with an elevator that would make any sense whatsoever (laughs) did the (laughs) german guy create the he sacrificed a dog 
scrawled oh. a symbol and transmogrified the floor into a hellmouth. So I anybody see. that went in didn't come back out. When the elevator doors opened, it opened into, yeah, whatever this hellmouth thing. You slowly open the door. They don't hear you. They're absorbed in their beers, noses in their stories, and this is what you hear. Copper Nails by Jeff C. Carter Maribel crept low through the darkness, hammer tight in her fist. She crouched behind a mailbox as headlights swept by. The rusty front gate wanted to squeal in alarm, but she made it whimper. This is ridiculous, she sighed. She felt like a lunatic skulking about her own damned yard, but her work required the cover of night. She clambered over the tilted sidewalk and withdrew a copper nail from her pocket. The ancient tree sprawled in its throne of shattered concrete. It was a towering, misshapen eyesore that had loomed over her house forever, twisting, bending, sagging, yet never quite falling down. Its corpulent trunk bulged and spilled over itself in mossy rolls. Its roots had swelled beneath the sidewalk, forcing it to buckle and slide off at haphazard angles. Some of its tendrils had snaked through her fence, swallowing posts and garden statues. Others had slithered beneath the road, leaving cracked and rippled asphalt in their wake. She placed the nail against the scabrous bark and raised her hammer. A bitter wind stirred the old tree's limbs. It creaked and let out a quiet moan, the same pathetic sound that Mother used to make. She pushed the memory down and swung the hammer. The nail sank with a satisfying thunk. She'd worried that the noise would bring the neighbors to their windows, but the soft copper took its beating without complaint. Sap oozed between her fingers. She thought it would look like blood, but it was foul and milky, like the pustulant drainage of bed sores. She wiped her hand on her pants and grabbed another nail. She moved as she worked, striking a ring of nails around the bloated trunk. The tree groaned as she continued towards its roots. For hundreds of years, the tree had weathered lightning, hurricanes, ice storms, even the arrival of power lines. It wouldn't survive this. Maribel pounded the final nail in deep where it could fester out of sight and rot the tree from within. She stretched her aching back and then scooted across the slanted sidewalk. Something crashed into the yard behind her. She spun around, hammer raised. A dark heap lay motionless atop the overgrown weeds. Nikki? It was only a branch, she saw, laying in the same spot that Nicholas had landed so many years ago. It was even broken in the same place as his spine. She retreated to the house and tossed the hammer on a stack of drywall. There were a million things to do before she could sell the old place, but she could cross that hideous tree off her list. She slept fitfully, trapped in the rut her bedridden mother had burrowed into the mattress. Dismal dreams came and went, and a queer sensation lingered in her waking moments. She felt like she was being watched, even though there was nothing at her back but a third-story window. She wanted to roll over and lay the fear to rest, but her body plainly refused. She pulled the scratchy covers tight to her chin. Foolish thoughts rustled as she slipped into unconsciousness. Did the tree expect to see Mother when it looked inside? Would it even know the difference? Morning arrived like a rude guest, pointing out the dust and mildew that had yet to be dealt with. Her bagel and coffee went cold as she argued with the loan officer on the phone over payments. Nicholas called on the other line. She let it ring. 
She had promised to visit him, and she would, once the house was on the market. There was just so much to do. She wished that her brother could have dealt with mother and the house, but of course he was in no condition to do anything. She dumped the coffee in the sink and poured herself some water. It tasted... wrong. She spat it out and wiped her mouth with her hand. Her fingers were sticky where the sap had stained her knuckles. She sniffed her hand, and then the glass of water. Oh, God. The contractor was there an hour later, true to his word. Your water pressure was off, so I snaked a camera up the supply line. You've got a root system growing in your pipes. Are you serious? Can that happen? It's pretty common. A big tree like the one out front can send its roots out pretty far. Luckily you caught it early, before the pipe backed up and you got flooded out. Maribel clapped. This means you can remove the tree, right? The contractor exhaled. It's on city property. I can't touch it. I called the city. They said there was a five-year waiting list to have a tree removed. Five years! Show them how it's messing with the pipes. It's messing with your pipes, not the public water main. I can dig up the blockage and route a new... No, no, no! Maribel pressed her hands to her eyes. No more digging. No more projects and price quotes and cost overruns. If you want to add another job, take that damn tree down. I got some copper nails, but God knows how long the contractor stepped back. I'm going to pretend I didn't hear that. That's a heritage tree, protected by state law. If there are copper nails in there... You'd better take them out, because if someone does cut it down, and they hit the nails, they could get really hurt. If you won't do the job, I'm afraid I'll have to look for another contractor. She spent the rest of the afternoon looking for tree services willing to bend the rules, without luck. Nicholas left her a voicemail, but she was too busy to check it. Dinner that night was a box of stale crackers and a bottle of wine. She ate absentmindedly while she sorted through Mother's pile of mail. There were unopened letters, unpaid bills and whole sheaves of tax documents. According to the banks and lawyers, they all required immediate attention. She found a stack of family photos among the mess. There was a family portrait with mother and father, standing proudly behind Maribel and Nicholas. Those were good times, when Nicholas could breathe on his own, and mother and father were alive. Next were the crumbling beige pictures. Mother as a young woman, standing in a line of brothers. The house was the same, but the roof had wooden shingles. The old tree wasn't in the photo, but its shadow draped over the family. Picture after picture, back through the generations, the tree was there. Its branches hid among the misty contours of black and white. Even in the oldest portraits, all but faded with time, the tree splayed like the afterimage of lightning. She stirred awake and stood, photos sliding from her lap. The night air prickled on her skin, the front gate squealed, and a tree swing swayed in the breeze, just as it had when she was a girl. She climbed on and spun, using her tiptoes to push herself around and around, winding herself up like a toy. The ropes drew tight around her neck, but she kept on going. The more she twisted, the longer she'd whirl around. The ropes were very tight now. It was getting hard to breathe. Fireflies appeared in the darkness, crowding the lawn like a family reunion. They paired off, gleaming, blinking, watching. They were her parents, her aunts and cousins, waiting for her to join them in the family cemetery behind the house. Maribel picked up her feet to unwind the swing. Rope dug into her neck, cutting off her windpipe. She clawed and flailed, ripping her hair out in clumps. She collapsed and tumbled down the sidewalk. Rope wrapped her under neck. It was rough and heavy, and when she ripped it loose, 
It dangled from the tree. It was a vine suspended from the upper branches. She stumbled across the empty lawn. There were no fireflies. Summer was long over. She pushed open the door, hacking and massaging her throat. Maribel had survived this house, and she would outlive that tree. By the time she was done, there wouldn't even be a stump left in the sidewalk. She wanted to laugh, but her throat burned, so she poured herself a glass of water and gulped it down. She sputtered. Blood soaked her shirt and pattered on the kitchen floor. She pried out the thing protruding from her neck. It was a copper nail. <laughs> that is the appropriate response. Thank you. Copper so, nails poison trees. That was my question. Yeah, mine too. That's the myth. If you look up like tree removal, it's like, oh, here's the secret no one wants you to know. You pound a bunch of copper nails in there and it starves the tree of nutrients. and ca- It's like a... Because if you have like a tree between you and your neighbor, there's like rules about how high it could be and who can remove it. Mm-hmm. And so people will go in there and pound in copper nails to kill it in secret. Does it take like years and months? I don't think it takes years, but... Yeah, so. if it's witchcraft, it's instantaneous. Yeah, it does have a witchy feel, which is what I thought. Mm-hmm. So I thought I'd write about it. Did the tree send a copper nail through her water pipes? Or shove it in her neck... After choking her. The roots were going into the water pipes, and a copper nail may have slipped through, and then when she drank the glass of water... So she she pulled it out of her mouth? No, she pulled it out of her neck. Like she swallowed it and it spiked out? Yeah. Ah. (laughs) My goal in this one was to make it plausible that the tree was some kind of evil entity, but Mm -hmm. also just that she was uh, stressed out and uh, really guilty about ignoring her sick mother and her paralyzed brother once upon a time we uh, build a bunch of tree forts and stuff in the woods oh yeah and i put like a thousand nails in one of the big pine trees so that we could hang stuff off it and then when they went to cut down all the trees (laughs) they were like they hit the nails an awful lot of nails in these trees and i laughed and laughed (laughs) yeah if you take a if your chainsaw hits a bunch of nails that's bad times not so good in that area in like new england they have to be careful because they never know whether, like, in colonial times, there's, right. there's like, metal and nails like embedded in the trees. Or, or, yeah. <laughs> Musket balls. Well, there's so many witches around at that time. Right. Exactly. The creak, creak, creak keeps you up all night. The wind throws the wooden shutters back and forth. But why can you not hear the wind? Why is there no light flashing through the open shutters? Not even a glimmer from the moon. Or stars. Is that the creaking of a door? A cabinet? You reach out and scrape your bloody fingers against the satin coffin lid. Alright, let me uh, preface this story by saying that it is a work of fiction. Any similarity between persons living or dead is purely coincidental. In 1992, when I was 21 years old, I murdered a woman. I strangled her with my bare hands. Up till now, I've gotten away with it as far as the law is concerned for obvious reasons i won't say her name we'll just call her m why did i murder m it's the same old story i loved her adored her but she couldn't care less about me she worked at a shop they sold denim pants and skirts the place has been out of business for over 20 years i'd go in there say hi she'd mention that she was hungry and i'd go and get her something to eat it was that kind of thing the letters i wrote to her went unanswered No reaction to the flowers I sent for her birthday. Nothing. My friends told me to let her go. She's not digging you, they said. But I held on to the idea that we'd be together. 
if only I could prove to her that I am the man, the real man that could take care of her and be her shelter in a storm. One evening she needed a ride home. Of course I offered, and though I saw her hesitation, she accepted. I bought flowers and waited till the end of the day. At the end of the day, we go to my car. The employee lot was notoriously dark. There were a few other cars, but no one was around. We got in my car and I told her everything. How I felt about her, how I dreamed of us being together, our future. I don't know if I talked for 30 seconds or 30 minutes, but at one point I knew that I'd stop talking. She stared at me and laughed. She said that she didn't share those feelings. She laughed. At the time, her laughter felt mocking, as if she was calling me a loser. She laughed at me. She accepted my flowers and my lunches, my rides home, and she dared to mock me. I grabbed her, seized her by the neck. She stopped laughing, stopped telling me that I wasn't her type, that she didn't think of me in that way. I don't know what I wanted. Truly, I never wanted to hurt her, but I couldn't stop squeezing her throat. The look on her face I'll always remember. Fear and anger. But also, why? Why are you doing this to me? She struggled, but I was even stronger then than I am now. Her eyes and mine were locked on each other. Just as she died, a tear, a single tear, rolled out of her left eye and left a streak that ran to her chin before falling and leaving a tiny splotch on her shirt. I still remember that. She was dead. I hoped that maybe she was just blacked out, passed out, and would come to. I sat with her in the car, one hour, praying, begging God to let her be okay. Two hours, sobbing, regretting what I had done. Three hours, trying to think of what to do. Everything that happens to us is because of the decisions we make. The next decision was the fateful one for me, even more important than killing that girl. I could have driven her body to the police station and gone in, told them what I did, pled guilty, gone to jail. I'd probably be out by now, but I chose not to do that. I always keep emergency supplies in my trunk. Shoes, a couple of blankets, tarp, rope, some water, first aid kit. Carrying all that shit around, I barely have room for my spare tire. I decided to use the tarp and duct tape. I decided to dump her body. We went to a place I knew, a strange kind of no man's land under the freeway. Under the freeway, behind a lot where they store empty propane tanks, I drug her wrapped up body out into the ivy beneath the off-ramp. She couldn't be seen from the street, or the lot, or the freeway. I left her there, wrapped in the tarp with the flowers I bought her. The streak from her tear was still on her face. After a couple of days, Em was reported missing. The cops came around. There were no leads. There were a couple of news stories. This was 92. No cell phones. Not like now. No social media. No doubt if I had did that now, I would have been caught in 20 minutes. Her friends and family held vigils. I even went to a few. Over the years, the attendance at the vigils dwindled. The case went cold. Her friends moved on and had families and jobs and responsibilities. The cops that investigated the case retired. The days turned to years, and M was just a fading memory to everybody. I found myself going days at a time without thinking about her. I moved on, got a series of better jobs, got a series of better girlfriends. Then my remote control went missing. The girl I was going with at the time, her name was Vera. I always thought Vera was an ugly girl's name, but she was cute. She was quirky. She liked my mismatched shoes. Things were going okay between us, and she started spending more time at my place. She lost a few things. I suggested we go to her place, but she had a roommate, and it was weird. The next couple of weeks passed in the fog. Vera was around less. She spent the night on Friday. Saturday morning, she got up, and I heard a muted scream from the bathroom. I ran in there. All of her things were missing from the medicine cabinet, but she said that when she slammed the cabinet shut, the reflection in the mirror wasn't her. She described the face to me. 
pretty girl, kind of an old-style hairdo, and a streak like she had been crying, a tear streak on her cheek. I'm sure I turned gray. I felt my knees soften. I stammered something about Vera being tired and to come back to bed. She wordlessly pulled on her clothes, slid on some shoes, and slipped out of the house. Was it possible that M was behind the missing stuff? How long had she been dead? 12, 15 years? Vera interrogated me on the phone. Who is she? How do you know her? I said that she had been the one to see the girl. She must have been a figment of her imagination. A hallucination. Vera had been working a lot, and the stress and worry about us must have set it off. She was willing to go with that. She didn't want to break up. A woman will build a mile-long jetty out of bullshit into a lake of doubt if she truly wants to stay together. So she agreed to get together one evening. We'd go to our favorite place. I went to pick her up at her office. I went in because I knew some of her co-workers, and had hung out with them and had a good time. After a few minutes of handshakes and bro hugs, Vera and I went to my car. I opened the passenger side door for her and she screamed and backed into me. She was crying. What's the matter? She saw the girl again sitting in the passenger seat. She said the girl turned and faced her, the tear streak on her face. Look, I said no one's in there. No one's in the seat. All the same, she refused to get in. She said, that's it, not going out tonight. I didn't hide my frustration. She ultimately did get in the car, but I just took her home. I dropped her off and said get some rest. Promised to call her in the a.m. I got home. The house was dark. I plopped down in a chair. M. Dead for more years than she ever lived. Haunting me. It took her a long time to gain the strength. It occurred to me that she wasn't that strong. Not as smart as I believed then. I was more in love with the idea of her. In retrospect, she wasn't what I thought she was. If she had gone out with me, if we had been together, we would probably have broken up in six weeks. But here we are, together forever. What I had with Vera was real. I knew that she's the one. At the end of every day, all I wanted was to spend time with her. I was ready to commit to her. When she finally called me back that day, I told her that. She agreed to come over. I sat there, still in the dark. It was a nice, quiet night, and I felt happy that Vera was coming. I closed my eyes. When I opened them, I saw M standing there. My heart skipped a beat. She looked the same. She stood there silently. I said to her, I'm sorry. Nothing from her. I said, I'm with Vera now. I want to be with her. I don't want you to scare her anymore. I'll ask you, will you forgive me? She shook her head no. I felt some anger welling up. I said to her, whatever you want to do to me is fine. Just leave her out of it. She stood there perfectly motionless and quiet. Leave her alone, I shouted. She disappeared just as the headlights from Vera's car filled the room momentarily with light. I told Vera that night how I loved her. I wanted to be together regardless of anything. That night we spent together was great. The perfect night. In the morning, I slipped out of bed to go to the coffee place and get some of the pastries she liked. I got that, some juice, small bouquet of flowers. When I got home, the house was quiet. I went to the bedroom, which is where I found her. Vera was on the floor. Her eyes were open. Her face showed pure fear. I dropped the juice and coffee and pastries. I looked at her face. A tear had fallen from her eye and left its streak on her cheek. I sat on the floor. I held her, sobbing for hours. Through my tears, I saw M sitting on the edge of my bed. She was laughing at me, but she wasn't mocking. She was happy. She stopped laughing and stared hard at me. She vanished. I can't recall how long I sat there with Vera. She was cold when I moved her. She was beginning to stiffen when I rolled her in the tarp. It was so hard to get her in the car. The empty propane storage lot is still there. So is the freeway and the ivy. M and Vera. Not a true story, please. Yeah. Exhibit A. My <laughs> Let the record show. Kind of thought that he was going to uh, get angry with her and strangle her, and then it was going to be Vera. I guess oh. that would be the obvious cliche way to go. Yeah, I don't know. I thought it was all, as I was doing, I was like, I think this is all pretty obvious. Kind of a bummer that uh, you die, someone kills you, and then you got to get 
stuck with I him. was thinking the same That's thing. That's hellish, yeah. That's the worst. Really hellish. I thought it was romantic. But you could be fucking with him the whole time. I guess that's true. And I was thinking about putting a thing in there about how she wasn't really that smart. If she was smarter, she would have gone out with him. She would have seen what an awesome <laughs> dude he was. <laughs> yeah. This is a horror story written by an incel. Yeah. <laughs> a wolf wails in the bitter cold night. A sad and lonely song, but it is not alone. Other voices rise to join the chorus. Hot breath flies from fanged mouths. They are getting closer. So very close. You feel it on your neck. This story is called Afraid of Dobermans, and it appears in the anthology Whispers from the Abyss, uh, published by Zero One Publishing. You've got to be kidding me. Mort stood up. He and his family were watching a TV documentary about different dog breeds. The woman on the television was an elderly neighbor, Carrie Mason, and she was being interviewed about her lifelong fear of Dobermans. As she spoke, these words appeared on screen. Carrie Mason, afraid of Dobermans. Previous interviewees in the documentary had actual titles under their names like veterinarian or breeder. As a result, it now looked like Carrie was afraid of Dobermans for a living. Like it's her job or something? Mort shouted, throwing the remote into the coffee table and startling his daughters who sat cross-legged on the floor. I'm the one who's afraid of Dobermans. Mary, his wife, pulled him back onto the couch. <sighs> she had been afraid this might happen. Earlier that summer, a camera crew had come around to the local park while they were playing with the girls, interviewing people about their dogs. They'd never had a dog, but Mort somehow got on camera anyway, and explained all the many, many reasons why Dobermans are assholes. He actually used that word, assholes. You can't trust a one of them, he'd concluded. Make sure you get that in there. Mort signed the release, found out what channel the show would be on, and then took the family out for ice cream. Mary could tell he was thrilled to be the center of attention, if only for a moment. He'd watched the TV schedule for months, waiting for this moment. A group of puppies were frolicking on screen. Cute, one of the girls shouted. Those puppies are bullshit, Mort said, red-faced. The girls were quiet for the rest of the documentary, even during the commercials. Then it ended. The credits rolled. Mort kept watching, hoping for outtakes. Nothing. He wasn't in it at all. That night, he hatched a plan. He told Mary he was going to overcome his fear of Dobermans. It would be the only way to right the wrong that had been done to him. If all that comes out of this is that you're not afraid of those things anymore, then that's a good thing, Mary said. But he didn't tell her the truth of the plan. If he could overcome his fear, he could adopt a few Dobermans, train them to kill and then let them loose on the neighbor who stole his 15 minutes of fame. If Carrie's really so afraid, he thought, then it'll be extra special when they chew her to death. Mary hated it when he chuckled to himself in the night. Eventually, Mort screwed up his courage and went to a Doberman breeder asking to volunteer. Being up close to the animals was rough, but he stood his ground, even explaining to the woman that he was overcoming a phobia. Over the next few months, he learned all about Dobermans. With knowledge came comfort. Finally, he brought a puppy home. The girls wanted to name it Monkey. He wanted Killer, but then thought it might be too on the nose given the dog's ultimate purpose. They all settled on Keith. Things changed. Keith seemed to understand Mort far better than Mary or the kids. The dog only cared about simple things, and in time taught him how to care about simple things. It loved him unconditionally, which he had never experienced raised as he was by his vacant grandparents. Keith brought life to the house. Mort saw how lucky he was. The family felt more like a family. Mort adopted more Doberman puppies. For Christmases and birthdays, people brought him uh, Doberman knickknacks. He put them all over the house, all over the kitchen. He became something of an expert, then an author. The girls did all the illustrations for his book on raising the dogs, which was dedicated to Mary. Eventually, more TV people came to the neighborhood. They did some screen tests and then offered him a job on their channel. His show launched a year later, The Doberman. Big hit. The late-night comics even mentioned his name. By training people to raise Dobermans, Mort was also changing their lives. As he enjoyed the success, Mort often thought about Carrie Mason, the woman he had plotted to kill. She had moved away from the neighborhood years before, but he had been writing his book and didn't notice. 
He chuckled to himself when he thought about how he used to blame his problems on other people. He had been such a confused and violent person. It was probably about time to thank the woman, even if it meant admitting his ridiculous plan. Maybe he could even help her overcome her fear of the breed, like he had for so many others. He decided to look her up. That's when he discovered that Carrie was in an asylum on the East Coast. There had been a series of disappearances around the neighborhood where she had moved, young children, and she had been caught lurking in the bushes near a daycare. When the police brought her in, she raved about terrible things that filled the air around us unseen. Not long after, they found the bodies in her attic. Upon hearing this, Mort felt his stomach drop through the floor. He was a failure all over again. If he only had followed through with his original plan to kill Carrie Mason, all of those children would be alive today. The end. Yeah, your typical. Wow. Yeah. Sometimes violence. Well, that old yarn is the answer. <laughs> I love how matter of fact his his plan to yeah to raise kill killer somebody. Dobermans and send them out. But it's a very typical stream of consciousness story though, yeah. because like I didn't plot it out at all. I didn't know where it was going to go. I just started writing it, and then it was like this happened and this happened, and then I thought it was funny, so I didn't change it at all. Fantastic. The flies take off as you approach the corpse. They hover and shine, wings sparkling with October moonlight. You cannot linger here for long, but it is always nice to see your body again.